Section 12 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland Volume 1 From the Beginning Until the Death of Alexander I, 1825 By Shimon Dubunov Translated by Israel Friedlander This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea Chapter 6 The Inner Life of Polish Jewry During the Period of Decline Part 1 1. Jewish Self-Government The fact that the Jews of Poland, despite the general disintegration of the country, where right was supplanted by privilege and liberty by license, were yet able to hold their own as an organized social unit, was principally due to that vast scheme of communal self-government, which had become an integral part of Polish Jewish life during the preceding period. Surrounded by enemies, ostracized by all other estates and social groups, Polish Jewry, guided by the instinct of self-preservation, endeavored to close its ranks and gather sufficient inner strength to offer effective resistance to the hostile non-Jewish world. One of the appeals issued in 1676 by the central organs of Polish Jewry, the Council of the Four Lands, begins with these characteristic words. Gravely have we sinned before the Lord. The unrest grows from day to day. It becomes more and more difficult to live. Our people has no standing whatsoever among the nations. Indeed, it is a miracle that in spite of all misfortunes, we are still alive. The only thing left for us to do is to unite ourselves in one league held together by the spirit of strict obedience to the commandment of God and to the precepts of our pious teachers and leaders. These sentences are followed by a set of paragraphs calling upon the Jews of Poland to obey, without murmuring, the mandates of the Kahals, to refrain from farming state taxes, from accepting the stewardship of Schlachta estates, and entering into business partnership with non-Jews without the permission of the Kahals, for the reason that such enterprises are bound to result in conflicts with the Christian population and in complaints on their part about the Jews. The Council also forbids entrusting Jewish goods to strange hands, resorting to the intervention of the Polish authorities for purposes injurious to the interests of the community, generating schisms and party strife among the Jews and similar actions. The rabbinical Kahal administration endeavored to impose its will upon every single member of the community by regulating his economic and spiritual life and to prevent as far as possible his coming in contact with the outside world. The greatest assistance in this endeavor came from the Polish government. Attaching great value to the Kahal as a convenient tool for the collection of Jewish taxes, the government bestowed upon it vast administrative and judicial powers. The government found it to its interest to deal with the Jewish communities rather than with individual Jews. The Kahal was held responsible by the government for the action of every one of its members 
or for any inaccuracy of the latter in the payments of taxes. The Kahal extended its influence in proportion to its responsibility. This tutelage of the Kahal resulted in strengthening the social organization of the Jews, while it curbed at the same time the personal liberty of its members to a greater extent than was demanded even by the strictest social discipline. As far as the Polish government was concerned, the Kahal was particularly valued as a responsible collecting agency among the Jews on behalf of the exchequer. At the sessions of the Wards, the wholesale amount of the Jewish head tax, designated as Gulgolet in the Jewish sources, was periodically fixed and apportioned among the Kahal districts. Within these Kahal districts, as well as in the individual communities, the apportionment of the taxes was a function of the local Kahal elders, who were in charge of the tax collection and were held responsible for its being accurately remitted to the exchequer. In 1672, the king bestowed upon the Kahal elders of Lithuania the right of excluding from the community or of punishing by other measures those recalcitrant members of their Kahals who by their acts were likely to arouse the resentment of the Christian population against the Jews. Ten years later, the Starosta of Brest issued a rescript forbidding the pans to lend money to private persons among the Jews without the knowledge of the Kahal elders. This was done in compliance with the request of these elders themselves, since they were held responsible for the insolvent debtors of their respective districts. On a previous occasion, at a conference of the representatives of the Lithuanian communities held in 1670, it was decided to prosecute every Jew who borrowed money from the pans or priests without the knowledge of their kahal. The voyevoda of Lemberg in 1692 forbade letting the collection of various state imposts, such as the excise on distilleries and retail sale of spirits, to Jews unless they produced a certificate of the Kahal elders testifying to their good conduct. The right of owning real estate or exploiting articles of revenue, leases and land rent was granted to private persons only with the permission of the Kahal, Hazaka. Without this license and the payment of a special tax, Heskat Yishib, no Jew was allowed to settle in a given locality or to enroll his name in the community. The limits of Jewish communal autonomy were not precisely laid down by the law of the state. They were enlarged or contracted in accordance with the will of the provincial administration, the voyevodas and starostas, and the agreement between these officials and the kahars concerning their respective spheres of influence. The model of a free communal constitution may be found in the statute granted by the Voyevoda of Red Russia, Galicia, in 1692, to the central Kahal of Lemberg. This statute authorizes the Jewish community to hold periodic elections to choose its elders in accordance with its customs and rights without the slightest interference on the part of the local administration. 
The chosen elders are recognized as the lawful officials and judges of their co-religionists in a given locality. Disputes and litigation between Jew and Jew are in the first instance to be settled exclusively by the Kahal courts, Beth Din, consisting of rabbis and elders, the latter acting as a jury. Cases between Jews and non-Jews, as well as appeals from the decision of the Beth Din, are to be tried by the Voivoda court and the special Jewish judge attached to it, the latter being a Christian official especially appointed for such cases. This judge is to be selected by the Voivoda from two candidates nominated by the Jewish elders. His function is to settle disputes and complaints in a definite place near the synagogue, in the Kahal chamber, in the presence of the Kahal elders. In his verdicts, the Jewish judge is to be guided not only by the general laws of the state, but also by the Jewish common law. The regular sessions of the court are to take place twice a week. In special cases, extra sessions may be arranged for on any day with the exception of the Jewish holidays. Subpoenas are issued through a synagogue beadle or a shamash. The protocols of the court are to be kept in the kahal chamber near the synagogue. The appeals from the judgments of these courts are to be submitted to the voyevoda himself. The elections of the various grades of Kahal elders were held, as in former years, annually during the intermediate days of Passover. This custom had legal sanction and was enforced by the local authorities. When, in 1719, the elders of the Kahal oppressed, prompted by personal considerations, were, in spite of the approach of Passover, delaying the holding of new elections, the Lithuanian hetman sent an order from Vilna, branding the act of the Kahal of Brest as illegal on the ground that, though obliged by law and custom to hold new elections of elders every Passover, they had not done so, delaying the elections for their own personal benefit. The elections were indirect, taking place through a limited number of electors and only persons of fairly high financial standing such as house owners or large taxpayers, were allowed to be candidates. As a matter of fact, intellectual qualifications were no less valued than financial standing, scholars occupying an honorable place in the communal council. The Kahal administration was thus oligarchic in character. The lower and poorer classes had no representation in it, and, as a result, their interest frequently suffered. In the 18th century, complaints coming from the Jewish rank and file are constantly heard about the oppression of the Kahal bosses, about the inequitable apportionment of taxes and similar abuses. During the same period, litigation between individual Kahals frequently arose concerning the boundaries of their respective districts. This litigation was due to the fact that the Jewish residents of the townlets and villages were subject to the jurisdiction of the nearest Kahal, whose income they helped to swell. Since, however, the Kahal district had never been officially delimited, several Kahals would occasionally lay claim 
to the control of the neighboring townlets and settlements called in Hebrew Sebiboth and Yushbim, and in the official language Brikahalki. Cases of this kind were brought either before the conferences of the district Kahals or the two central parliamentary institutions of Polish Jewry, the Council of the Four Lands and the Council of the Principal Communities of Lithuania. The centralization of Jewish self-government in these two councils, that of the Crown and of Lithuania, was one of the main factors in stabilizing Jewish autonomy during that period of instability and disintegration. The meetings or diets of these councils, which were attended by representatives of the Kahals and the Rabbinates, afforded a regular opportunity for discussing the questions affecting the general welfare of the Polish Jews and for establishing well-defined relations with the government and the diets of the country. Attached to the ward were special advocates, Stadlans, designated as general syndics in the Polish documents, who went to Warsaw during the sessions of the Polish Chamber for the purpose of submitting the necessary obligations in defense of Jewish rights or of presenting the taxation lists of the Jewish communities. The Ward of the Crown continued to meet periodically in Lublin and Yaroslav in Galicia and occasionally in other places while the Lithuanian Council assembled in different towns in Lithuania. The activity of these central agencies of self-government was particularly intensified in the latter part of the 17th century when the state of communal affairs, solely shaken during the preceding period of unrest, had to be restored. The government upheld the authority of the Wards in the eyes of the Jewish population, finding it more convenient to maintain relations with one or two central organizations than to deal with a large number of local agencies. In 1687, the Jewish elders of the Crown, of Poland proper, acting on behalf of the Council at Yaroslav, lodged a complaint with King Sobieski, declaring themselves unable to assume the responsibility for the collection of the Jewish head tax to the amount fixed by the preceding Polish Diet, owing to the fact that many Jews in the cities and villages, benefiting by the protection of the pans and even the royal officials, refused to acknowledge the jurisdiction of the elders of the crown and shirked their duty as taxpayers. In view of this, the king issued a decree condemning in strong terms such interference and disorder and enjoining the individual kahals to submit to the apportionment of taxes by the elders of the crown and altogether to acknowledge their jurisdiction in general Jewish affairs under the pain of severe fines for the disobedient. The gradual deterioration of social and economic conditions in Poland rendered the activities of the world more complicated. The wards were now called upon to regulate also the inner affairs of the communities as well as their relations to the government and the urban estates, the magistracies and guilds. 
It cannot be said that the words exhibited on all occasions an adequate understanding of the political situation, or that they did full justice to the far-reaching demands of a truly popular representation. They were too little democratic in their composition to accomplish so large a task. The delegates to the world were not elected by the communities with this end in view, but were recruited from among the rabbis and elders of the principal communities, the notables and influential men. However, in spite of their inadequate oligarchic organization, the words were largely instrumental in unifying communal Jewish life and in enhancing discipline in Polish-Lithuanian Jewry. One of the most important duties of the world was the maintenance of Jewish public schools, the Talmud Torahs and Yeshivas, which at communal expense imparted religious instruction primarily to poor children and youth. From the minutes of the Lithuanian world, which have come down to us, we learn of the fact that every one of its conferences placed at the head of its enactment a number of clauses providing for the obligatory instruction of the young in yeshivas throughout the country for the maintenance of the students by the various communities in cash and in kind and for the formulation of the curricula and the statutes of all these institutions of learning no wonder that the endeavors of the world were crowned with success, and that the intellectual level of the Jews of Lithuania was very high. It must be owned, however, that their mental horizon was not large, inasmuch as the whole course of study, even in the highest schools, was limited to the Talmud and rabbinic literature. Furthermore, the Council of the Four Lands established a control over the books issued by the printing presses of Krakow and Lublin or imported from abroad. Only such books were allowed to circulate as were supplied with the printed approbation or haskama of the word or some authoritative rabbis. Very frequently, the word also intervened in the struggle of parties and sects which, as will be seen later, followed the rise of the Sabbatian movement. Many public functions which lay outside the sphere of activity of the central world were discharged by the local district conventions or diatines, Wade Medina or Wade Galil, the latter acting as the agencies of the Kahal federations of the given region. In official language, these district federations were often designated as synagogues, especially prominent during this period were the Volinian synagogues, i.e. the Federation of the Kahals of Volinia and the White Russian Synagogue, composed of the federated communities of the present government of Mogilev. The former sent its representative to the Council of the Four Lands while the latter was affiliated with the Ward of Lithuania. The periodic conventions of these two synagogues not only decided the allotment of taxes within the Kahal districts, but also took up questions of general character, 
such as the sending of advocates to the general Polish Diet, the instructions to be given to the deputies of the central ward, the problem of Jewish education, the rabbinate, etc. Less noticeable was the activity of the Kahal federations of the three crown provinces, Little Poland with the central community of Krakow, Great Poland with Posen, and Red Russia with Lemberg. We know, however, that they too assembled periodically, either at the initiative of the Kahals themselves or by order of the voyevoda of a given province. These conventions or diatines had their floor leaders or marshals after the pattern of provincial Polish diets. At least such was the insistent demand of the voyevodas who preferred to transact their official business with the responsible leaders of the conferences. The interference of the administration in the affairs of the Jewish Autonomous Organization became particularly frequent in the first part of the 18th century, when the political anarchy in Poland reached its climax. The whole Kahal organization received a severe blow at the hands of the Polish government in 1764. The General Confederacy, which preceded the election of King Stanislav Augustus, having framed a new constitution, decided to change fundamentally the system of Jewish taxation. Instead of the former procedure of fixing the amount of head tax in total and leaving its allotment to the districts and individual communities to the conferences of the elders and kahals, the Diet passed a resolution imposing a uniform tax of two gulden on every registered Jewish soul of either sex beginning with the first year of after birth. This change was justified on the ground that, in the opinion of the government, the previous wholesale system of taxation enabled the cars to collect from taxpayers a much larger sum than originally determined upon. Moreover, simultaneously with the head tax, other imposts were levied by the cars. This resulted in burdening the Jewish population and in hiding its true tax-paying capacity from the government while, according to the new system, the exchequer was likely to receive a much larger revenue. To secure the accurate collection of the head tax, a general registration of the Jewish population in the whole country was ordered. The taxes of each community were to be remitted by its kahal elders to the nearest state treasury. In consequence, the functions of the kahals as far as the apportionment of taxes was concerned, were officially discontinued and the Kahal elders became mere go-betweens who handed over the tax revenues to the exchequer. The government ceased to recognize the role of the Kahal as a fiscal agent which it had formerly valued so greatly and no more considered it necessary to uphold the authority of this autonomous organization. The whole machinery of Jewish self-government, all these diets and diatines, the wars and district conferences suddenly became superfluous, if not injurious, in the eyes of the government. No wonder, then, that the same Diet of 1764 passed a resolution forbidding henceforth 
the holding of conventions of district elders for the fixation or distribution of any tax collections or for any other purpose. This limitation of activities of the Kahals and the entire abolition of the central agencies of Jewish autonomy took place on the eve of the abolition of political independence in Poland itself, eight years before its first partition. We shall see later that the subsequent period of unrest, marked by the transfer of the greater part of Polish territory to the dominion of Russia, introduced even greater disorder into the once so firmly consolidated autonomous organization of the Jews, and robbed the Jewish people of one of the mainstays of its national existence. 2. Rabbinical and Mystical Literature The social and economic decline of the Polish Jews, which set in after 1648, was not conducive to widening the Jewish mental horizon, which had been sharply defined during the preceding epoch. Even at the time when Polish-Jewish culture was passing through its zenith, Rabbinism reigned supreme in school and literature. Needless to say, there was no chance for any broader intellectual currents to contest this supremacy during the ensuing period of decline. The only rival of Rabbinism, whose attitude was now peaceful and now warlike, was mysticism, which was nurtured by the mournful disposition of a life-worn people and grew into maturity in the unwholesome atmosphere of Polish decadence. The intensive Talmudic culture, which had been fostered by many generations of rabbis and Rosh Yeshvas, was not distributed evenly. In those parts of the country, which had suffered most from the horrors of the terrible decade, 1648 to 1658, in the Polish Ukraine, Podolia and Volhynia, the intellectual level of the Jewish masses sank low and lower. Talmudic learning, which was formerly widespread among the Jews of those provinces, now became the possession of a narrow circle of scholars, while the lower classes were stagnating in ignorance and superstition. A former position was still held by Rabbinism in Lithuania and in the original provinces of Poland, but here too the intellectual activity became pettier and poorer, not so much in quantity as in quality. It is still possible to enumerate a large number of names of great Talmudists and rabbis who commanded the respect and admiration not only of the Jews of Poland, but also of those outside of it. But in the domain of literary productivity, these scholars did not leave so profound an impress on posterity as their predecessors, Solomon Luria, Moses Isoles, Mordecai Yaffe, and Maya of Lublin. Even within the narrow sphere of the rabbinic literary output, originality was sadly missing. The stars of rabbinism who were engaged in learned correspondence, Charlotte or Teshboth, with one another were, as a rule, immersed in fruitless controversies about complicated and petty cases of religious and legal practice, frequently degenerating into the discussion of questions 
which do not arise in real life. Others wrote diffuse hair-splitting commentaries and novelle, hidushim, on various tractates of the Talmud, including those which had long lost all legal significance. Thus, Aaron Samuel Kaidanova, rabbi of Krakow, who had narrowly escaped the massacres of 1648, commented on the section dealing with the sacrifices and the ancient ritual of the temple in Jerusalem, Birkat Hazeva. Still others wrote annotations and supplements to the Shulan Aruk. Lithuania, in particular, excelled by the number of its celebrities in the field of rabbinic scholatism, all men who refused to acknowledge any branch of secular and even religious knowledge outside the domain of Talmudic dialectics. A rare exception among these scholars were Yehiel Halperin, about 1670 to 1746, rabbi of Minsk, who wrote an extensive historic chronicle under the name of Seder Hadorot, the Order of the Generations. Halperin's work, which is divided into three parts, narrates in the first the events of Jewish history from biblical times down to the year 1696. The second part enumerates in alphabetical order the names of all the Tanaim and Amoraim, and cites the opinion and sayings attributed to each of them in the Talmud. The third part contains a list of orders and books of the post-Talmudic period. The original contribution of Halperin consists in his having systemized the extremely complicated material and rendered it available for a characterization of the Talmudic rabbis. In all else, he merely copied earlier chroniclers, particularly David Gans, without any attempts at the critical analysis. He even fails to render accounts of such important events of his own time as the messianic movements of Sabbatai Zevi. The essence of history to him is identical with the genealogies of scholars, saints and rabbis, the only reason for existence which, in his judgment, historiography may claim is to serve as the handmaid of rabbinism. Even this outlook upon history, narrow though it be, was entirely foreign to Halperin's contemporaries. Side by side with the scholastic literature of rabbinism flourished popular ethical literature, Muzar. Its originators were the preachers, Darshanim, some of whom occupied permanent posts attached to synagogues, while others wandered about from town to town. The synagogue sermons of that period, which have come down to us in various collections, consist of a long string of Haggadic and Kabbalistic quotations, by means of which the biblical texts are given an entirely perverted meaning. The preachers were evidently less anxious to instruct their audience than to exhibit their enormous erudition in theoretical literature. Some of these preachers endeavored in particular to foist upon the people the notions of the practical Kabbalah. The sacred writing of Ari and his school were circulated in Poland in manuscript copies which went from hand to hand. 
The ideas embodied in the Kabbalistic doctrine of Ari were popularized in the shape of gruesome stories concerning life after death, the tortures of the sinners in hell, the transmigration of souls, and the exploits of demons. The books, which endeavored to inculcate piety among the masses by means of these stories, became rapidly popular. Towards the end of the 17th century, the Kabbalist Joseph Dubner wrote a work in this spirit under the title Yesod Yosef, Foundation of Joseph. Prior to its publication, Dubner's work was utilized by Hirsch Kaidanover, a son of the above-mentioned rabbi of Krakow, Aaron Samuel Kaidanover, and issued by him in an improved and amplified version in Frankfurt on the Main, in 1705, under the name of Kap Hayashar, The Just Measure. A few years later, the book was published also in the Yiddish vernacular and became a great favorite among the lower classes as well as among women. The Kap Hayashar breathes a spirit of gloomy asceticism and is expressive of a funereal frame of mind. O man, the author exclaims, were thou to know how many demons thirst for thy blood, thou wouldst abandon thyself entirely with heart and soul to Almighty God. The air, according to the doctrine preached in this book, is filled with the invisible spirits of the dead, who can find no rest in the other world, and teems with the wandering shadows of sinners and demons, who frequently slip into living beings and force them to rage like madmen. Scores of reliable stories are quoted, telling of the conflict between men and demons and of the exploits of miracle workers who have exorcised the evil spirits by means of incantations. Prominent among these stories is an account of the expulsion of devils from a house in Posen, which produced a great sensation at the time. Evil spirits had been constantly haunting the inhabitants of the house. At first they sought advice of the local Jesuit priests. When the remedy employed by the latter proved of no avail, the inhabitants invited the famous magician and miracle worker Joel Balshem from Jamoshik. The miracle worker subjected the demons to a regular cross-examination demanding an explanation why they refused to abandon the ill-fated house. At the cross-examination, the demons argued that the house was theirs by inheritance, inasmuch as they were the legitimate children of the former owner of the house, a Jewish artisan who had had relations with a female devil. As a result, a conference of rabbi of Posen was held in the presence of the above-mentioned miracle worker, and their verdict was that the demons had no claim to immovable property in places populated by human beings, but were limited in their right of residence to forests and deserts. Such was the spiritual pabulum on which the Jewish masses were fed by their leaders. A writer of the beginning of the 18th century makes the observation that there is no country where the Jews are so much given to mystical fancies, devil hunting, talismans, 
and exorcism of evil spirits as they are in Poland. The demands brought forth a supply, and even the celebrated rabbis frequently devoted themselves to Kabbalistic exercises. One of these was the rabbi of Ostrog and Posen, Naphtali Cohen, 1614-1719, of whom the following curious incident is related. After settling in Frankfurt on the Main, he made the people believe that he had discovered the magic formula against fire. As luck would have it, a fire broke out in his own house and destroyed a considerable part of the Jewish quarter. The ill-fated Kabbalist was sent to jail on the charge of careless handling of fire during his pyrotechnic experiment, 1711. After his release from prison, Naphtali Cohen led the life of wanderer, entering into suspicious relations with Hayyun, the notorious emissary of Sebastian sect, though afterwards, when Hayyun's heresy had been unmasked in Amsterdam, he renounced all connection with the heretic. During the contest, which for many years was waged by Emden against Ibeshitz and his mysterious talismans, the majority of Polish rabbis sided with Ibeshitz. Evidently, they found nothing objectionable in the attempt to cure diseases by means of Kabbalistically inscribed talismans. End of section 12